The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This is a Reconstructionist radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com. Spiritual Gifts by Caitlin Smith All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been given something, something precious, special, and unique to each individual, a special gift that the Lord has given us to use in a way to further His kingdom, a spiritual gift. Some have been blessed with many, and to others God has given only one. It is our duty to guard these gifts, to use them to bless and encourage others, and to use them to advance the rule of Christ in this world. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4-7 through Charles Spurgeon wrote thus on this passage, Now concerning spiritual things. As the Corinthians abused the gifts of God for ostentation and show, and love was little, if at all regarded, he shows them for what purpose believers are adorned by God with spiritual gifts, for the edification of their brethren. This proposition, however, he divides into two parts, for, in the first place, he teaches that God is the author of those gifts, and secondly, having established this, he reasons as to their design. He proves from their own experience that those things in which they gloried are bestowed upon men through the exercise of God's favor. Now there are diversities of gifts, the symmetry of the church consists, so to speak, of a manifold unity, that is, when the variety of gifts is directed to the same object, as in music there are different sounds, but suited to each other with such an adaptation as to produce concord. Hence, it is befitting that there should be a distinction of gifts as well as of offices, and yet all harmonize in one. Paul, accordingly, in the twelfth chapter of Romans, commends this variety, that no one may, by rashly intruding himself into another's place, confound the distinction which the Lord has established. Hence, he orders everyone to be contented with his own gifts, and cultivate the particular department that has been assigned to him. He prohibits them from going beyond their own limits by a foolish ambition. In fine, he exhorts that every one should consider how much has been given him, what measure has been allotted to him, and to what he has been called. The goal of this article is not to create a list of spiritual gifts or to help you figure out what gift God has given to you. I'd like to take a different perspective and instead look at how we can best use the gifts God has given to us. The reason for this thinking is because we should not be focused on what gifts we have been given, but on utilizing the unique opportunities and circumstances presented to us for the glory of God. I don't want anyone to get so wrapped up in thinking, I have the gift of prayer, therefore I am going to wait on someone else to come and minister to you. But rather, I'd like to encourage you to humbly ask the question, Lord, how can I best serve you right now? 
There are many spiritual gifts listed in the Word of God, all of which are to be used for the edification of the saints. In 1 Peter 4 verse 10 we read, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are to use the gifts God has given us to minister to one another and encourage them in the faith. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 12. Perhaps you have been gifted with encouragement. Use that gift for God's kingdom. Maybe you have been given the gift of playing an instrument. Use it to bless others and it as a means of turning hearts and minds to the Lord. The gifts God has given you are never meant to be kept for yourself. They are meant to be shared, to be used to strengthen the peace of those who are struggling, to give joy to those who are weeping, and to give faith to those who are faint-hearted. I am blessed to know one young lady who is able to turn another's thoughts back to Scripture. I can vividly remember a time not too long ago when this woman was a great blessing to me. It was during a time of uncertainty for our family. It was a time when our family was torn in many different directions, and we were all strongly depending on God's grace for each new day. My parents had to leave our church in a hurry to meet an ambulance at the hospital. No one knew if the person being transported would survive the ride, and we had already had many emotional months concerning this dear relative. This friend saw me struggling, she saw my fear, and she came over to me with a hug and gentle words of encouragement. She pulled me close and prayed for me. I was so humbled and encouraged. I needed that. My soul needed care, for, and the Lord saw fit to send someone to care for me in that manner. She was willing to use the gift God gave her to support and encourage others, and it was a blessing. Do we seek to be a blessing to others in this manner? Are we open to serving the Lord however he may ask, even if it seems uncomfortable or awkward? We feel the Lord's tender promptings to go and ask that girl in the store why she is so sad, to start a conversation with the man behind us in line, to say something kind to the waitress serving our table, to walk up and greet the visitors attending our church one morning, and we don't because we feel awkward or out of place, or like we are prying into their lives where we don't belong, because we worry what they will think about us. But do we ever consider what God will think about us? What if He put us in that person's life, divinely orchestrated everything just right, so that we can speak a word in due season to that person, encourage them, plant a seed of hope in their heart? What if He is encouraging us to use the gifts He has given to us, the gifts He has entrusted to our keeping? And I am absolutely speaking to myself as I write this, because I fail utterly when it comes to striking up a conversation. I get tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to keep the conversation going. I just don't feel comfortable. But do you know the common problem with these excuses that a good friend pointed out to me? The underlying factor? I, me, myself. I am too quiet. I am too shy. I am uncomfortable. Our personalities play a large part in this, and all too often I am quick to blame my failure to use the gifts God has blessed me with on my personality. As I have grown older, I commonly hear the excuse given that, that's not just in my personality, or that's not the way God created me. I once heard a wise man say that our personality crosses the line into sinfulness when we allow ourselves to sin based on it. We are sinners, we have always been sinners, and our personalities are such that we shun anything holy and run after the world's sinful fleshly desires. Without the grace of God in our lives, without His mercy and His loving kindness, we would always be destined to be sinners in the hands of an angry God. The truth is, no one's personality has anything to do with the works of light by themselves. We are told to submit our wills to His, James 4 verse 7 to exercise self-control, Galatians 5, verses 22-23, and to follow Him, Luke 9, verse 23. To allow our personalities to reflect our sinful tendencies and to use the excuse of God making us that way seems as if we are searching for an excuse 
that will enable us to sing comfortably, does it not? I must not allow the fact that I am quiet to prevent me from engaging with others for God's glory, even if my natural tendency is to be quiet. We are told in Romans that we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members of another. Having then gifts given according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Romans 12 verses 4 through 8. Our gifts are all different. We have all been put in a place where we can use the gifts God has given us to the best of our abilities. The local church is a wonderful example of this. It is a body of believers who all have gifts that complement one another when used in a humble way. In my own family, I can see this divine orchestration clearly as we discover strengths and weaknesses in each other that we can use to our advantage. This does take humility. We can't be covetous of others' strengths. We can't take over everything simply because we can handle it all. We need to be willing to work together, to recognize that this person just may be better for this task than you, or that your strengths might be best utilized behind the scenes, in the kitchen, or taking out the garbage, while others get the more glamorous jobs. We need to be willing to use the gifts God has entrusted to us in the manner that would best show others the glory of God. We must always practice our gifts with responsibility and humility. We must never allow pride to creep in or to allow ourselves to do something for recognition by men. In playing instruments, in praying for others, in serving someone, we must never do it expecting recognition or gratitude or to be paid back in time. We must always strive for pure motives, for a motive that tells others around us that we do what we do simply because we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Mark 12 verse 30. And we have a desire to see others in this world doing the same. Just as the parable of the men and the talents found in Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30, we must strive to be a good steward of the gifts given to us. We must remember that they are a trust given to us by our Maker, that He will expect us to give an account to Him of how we use them. May we all strive to be ever ready to serve the Lord through the gifts He has graciously bestowed. Words, a Biblical Analysis by Caitlin Smith Words, both written and spoken, are important to us. They are a means of communication. They are the most effective way to share with others what is going on in our lives and hearts. There are other ways of communicating, but we all have a foundation of words that mean something intelligible. Humans are not solitary creatures. We were created to have fellowship with others, to seek out friendships, and to communicate. We see the importance of words in the preservation of the greatest book of all time, the Holy Bible. We only have the Holy Scriptures, the revealed will of God, because of the words that were put down. These were the words that were considered by God important enough to preserve and pass on to future generations. Jesus spoke to his disciples through parables and explained the parables with the use of words. We have the Proverbs King Solomon spoke to his son. From these Proverbs so many of us have learned and grown, and this was because someone knew what a legacy they would be to the future world through all the ages yet to come. Written words are important to us. It is through written words that we know our nation's heritage and history. Through written words, we know where we have come from. Letters written have connected families and friends for centuries. Historically, this included the soldier on the front lines of battle, the missionary laboring to bring souls to a knowledge of Christ, and the children who left their fortunes out on the prairie, forsaking all to follow their husband's dream of taming an untamed world. 
Through the use of printing presses, books have been written. These same books that were once a scarcity and considered precious now spread far and wide by all who wish to possess them. And people have read them. They have impacted our lives and our cultures, some for better and some for worse. Through books and letters, people have been encouraged, the mourner given hope, the lonely given a sense of feeling and camaraderie, and the seeker given knowledge. One of the founding fathers of our nation, Benjamin Franklin, once exhorted, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. The words we put down on paper are important. They have meaning. They convey a part of us that others will come to know. They are the reducing of a string of jumbled up thoughts into something legible for others to read and critique. We have a need to be careful as we set pen to paper, considering every word we put down in the light of God's holy word. Are we writing what is glorifying to him? Are those who are reading going to leave encouraged or downhearted? Are our words going to be giving permission to sin? Are they going to read the complaints of a discouraged life or a joyful hope and expectation in the Lord alone? Are we going to be real with our struggles and triumphs? Or are we going to hide behind a fake mask, pretending everything is going fine when inside we are fighting a continuous struggle? I once had the pleasure to read an author, Elise Fitzpatrick, who started her book with a foreword about the importance of words. You rely on me to give you something worth your while, but what exactly are you investing in? Only this, black words on a white page arranged in a way which enriches you, black squiggles, letters and words and sentences that assures you that you are not alone. But knowing we are not alone is not all we need. We also need these black lines, these words, to impart a strength that will enable us to keep on, to keep walking by faith through the dark. Have others gone before us? Did they make it home? Was God faithful? We need assurance that there is a God who is ruling sovereignly over our prayers. Home by Elise Fitzpatrick. How true this is. Words are important for they give us a sense of belonging. They give us a sense of peace. They serve as a welcomed reminder that our God is sovereign. We are blessed in this day and age to read of the many lives that God used to further his kingdom, to read of the struggles and temptations that were faced and overcome, and of the powerful God in using ordinary men and women, people like you and I, to have an impact for him. I cannot begin to tell you of the countless times I have been encouraged to stand strong simply by becoming friends with a godly person from years gone by. Proverbs 16 verse 24 tells us that, Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and health to the bones. Mrs. Fitzpatrick says this in a later part of the same book. One of the reasons we read is to recognize our shared human experience. We are not alone, and what you and I are walking through now, we walk through together, as fellow sojourners in a world where there is nothing unshared, nothing uncommon, and nothing new. We have each other and our communal experience of life where what has been is what will be, and there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. We read to hear our own voice of faith whispered in the storm of doubt, to hear another's voice calling back to us from somewhere on the road up ahead. We read to find our way to rest, to family, to home. The scripture tells us the purpose and importance of words. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 Our words should be such as will lead others to a deeper knowledge of him who sits on the throne. Revelation 5 verse 13 we are told to never let the words of men deceive us, lest the wrath of God come upon us. Ephesians 5 verse 6. This should make us wary as we work at putting down our thoughts on paper into sensible lines of black and white, knowing it comes with such a responsibility. Never should the words we set down on paper give a person permission to sin. Never should we give credence to sinful actions, attitudes, thoughts, or desires. Never should the words we write take away someone's innocence. We should strive to make Philippians 4 8 our standard in all things. 
Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. I often write to bring some semblance of peace to my thoughts. There are times when I have so much going on in my mind that everything seems like a jumbled up mess and I need to get all the chaotic thoughts onto paper to reduce the confusion in my brain to words, letters, sentences, to give it form and sanity such that it makes some sort of sense. I once received the advice to never take a pen in hand when I was angry for fear that I would write something that I would regret later. I learned the hard way that relationships were damaged and trust was broken because of what I had written where I thought no one else would look. Take heed and be careful of what you write. Your words put in the written form will have an impact on whoever may read them. As careful as we are with our words, we should be even more aware of the responsibility that comes as we verbalize our words to others, as we share our thoughts, our heartaches and fears, our temptations and struggles with those we trust, there comes a level of accountability to others who will hear us. Once a word has been spoken, you can never take it back. The amount of importance that comes with the words we choose to say is sobering. It will always be remembered, and it can never be deleted or erased. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that we will be held accountable for every foolish and idle word that we speak on the Day of Judgment, Matthew 12, verse 36, and that our words will justify us or condemn us. Matthew 12, verse 37. James tells us that the tongue is a powerful tool, one to be reckoned with, and one hard to tame. James 3, verses 3 through 10. From him we learn that the man who can bridle his tongue is a man who is perfect, able to bring his whole body under the submission of the Lordship of Christ. James 3, verse 2. We must be extremely careful with the words we speak. It is most often the spoken words that we regret, the words spoken in anger, in the heat of an argument, we use words both to defend ourselves against accusations and to debate each other in friendly arguments. It is these words we must use cautiously, these words which we are throwing out there in the heat of the moment with no time to think of what we are saying. It is these words that will leave a footprint in someone's life, whether for good or for evil. This is one of the reasons we are exhorted to always have an answer prepared when we are questioned of the faith that is within us. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 we are to answer with grace, Colossians 4, verse 6, to every person, praying and desiring that our words will be acceptable in the sight of God, Psalms 19, verse 14. We are warned not to give a hasty answer, Proverbs 29, verse 20, but rather to study to show thyself approved unto God, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. We are told many times throughout the scripture that a fool uses a multitude of words, Ecclesiastes 10, verses 12 through 14. Our words are used to build others up or tear them down. The words we speak to someone on a daily basis have the power to corrupt their lives, discouraging them and causing them to despair, or to build them up toward the kingdom of God, towards faith and repentance. Ephesians 4 verse 29. We must be careful during arguments to choose our words wisely. Psalm 49 verse 3. We must learn to use words that we will not regret afterwards by striving to speak kindly and graciously. This is still a lesson I'm learning, that I don't have permission to speak back to someone in the same way they have spoken to me. I am not held accountable to God for the way they use their words, but only for the way I use mine. According to God's word, I am not allowed to sin with my tongue. I must learn to bridle it, keep it, bring it under the subjection of God's law word, James 3 verse 6. I must learn to answer with soft, kind words, as such turn away wrath, Proverbs 15 verse 1. To be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, James 1 19. James laments that out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, and tells us that these things ought not so to be. James 3 verse 10. 
I do not have an excuse to allow pride to rear its ugly head because I get offended when someone speaks hastily or rudely to me. I need to learn that in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs 10 verse 19. We are told, and truly so, that whosoever keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. Proverbs 21 verse 23. If we follow this instruction, we will not have the regrets at the end of the day of words spoken hastily and relationships that are in pieces due to our unruly tongue. The saying is true. It takes two to argue. It only takes two to carelessly use words that are intentionally meant to be a poison stab to the soul of the hearer. If we use words in this manner, then our religion is in vain. James 1 verse 26 Even though the words spoken may have pierced your heart, if you can refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile, Psalm 34 verse 13, then you have assurance that you have tried your best to glorify God through your speech. Many of us fall into a habit with our words of using them as daggers to throw out and offend any and everyone who crosses our path. We need to realize that our words can snare us, Proverbs 6 verse 2, and can capture us and keep us in a perpetual pattern of sin, causing grief and heartache as we struggle to bring our tongues and words into submission to Christ. Proverbs 18 verse 21 warns us that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. King Solomon tells us that God hates a froward mouth. Proverbs 8 verse 13. We need to understand this and take it seriously. Lives can be ruined by the words that are carelessly spoken in the heat of anger. Friendships can be destroyed and family ties brought to naught, all because of a little appendage called the tongue. In contrast to using our words to injure others, we are told that a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15 verse 4. King Solomon vividly portrays how our words affect others in Proverbs 25 verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Our words are important to encourage those around us. How many times I have been encouraged by sharing a burden that has been on my heart and being told that someone else is praying for me, fighting the battle with me on their knees. I have learned through experience that the simple words, I am praying for you, can be a blessed balm to a soul that is sore and troubled. I have been given comfort many times by those friends who use their words to pray for me, to care enough for my soul to take the time and put effort into communicating with me about how I need prayer, how I am struggling, and what the Lord has been teaching me. I have been slowly learning that I myself need to make an effort to communicate with others, that being an introvert doesn't give me an excuse to be quiet and self-absorbed, to stand back in the corner and let everyone else do the talking. I need to go out of my way to speak to others, to build them up in the Lord. I need to make an effort to find out what is going on in someone else's life, speaking with them, using words that show them the glory of the hope that is within me. A friendship is built on words, on the exchanging of ideas by both parties. They are established by conversation, supported by both people, and that cannot occur when one person is doing all the talking and one person all the listening. Just because I have a quieter personality does not mean I have a license to sin in that area. It means I have been given the challenge of overcoming my weakness through the blood of Christ. We can do all things through Christ who is our strength. Philippians 4 verse 13. This includes using our words for God's glory. In Psalms, David tells us that when the law of God is in our hearts, our steps will not slide. Psalm 37 verse 31. They will not falter or stray from the straight and narrow path. Instead, the mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom. Psalm 37 verse 30. May we all use our words, the gift of speech, for the glory of him who created us. May our speech always be full of grace and seasoned with salt, Colossians 4, 6. And may it make an impact on the culture around us, such that we are a shining light, a beacon to the nations of his grace, mercy, and steadfast love.
Plague of Pietism by Jonathan Character. In the first century, the church had two main enemies, the Jews, who were backed militarily by Rome, and heretical doctrine. There are two main heretical doctrines the church had to deal with, Judaism and Gnosticism. Today, Gnosticism has been repackaged and relabeled, but remains unchanged in its focus. The modern doctrine of pietism is now the most vivid manifestation of first century Gnosticism. It is important to address pietism because it is a great enemy to the church and to those Christians who would seek to serve Christ and see his rule, kingdom, extended throughout the earth. What is most surprising is that the pietistic resistance to those seeking to accomplish this vision comes from the pulpits all across this country. Why is there this pushback? What is it about pietism which is so fearful of this vision of victory? In understanding pietism, it is first helpful to make an important distinction between piety and pietism. Piety is what every believer is required to display before the Lord God Almighty. Pietism is a movement which began near the end of the 17th century and recaptured the Gnostic principles which plagued the church centuries ago. Historians contend that the pietistic movement was birthed in a response to the cold orthodoxy, which had become prevalent throughout Europe some 150 years after the Protestant Reformation. The leaders of this movement saw that Christianity was prevalent in the public realm, but not in the private realm of individual believers' personal lives. Because of this, the pietists went to the other extreme, focusing Christianity so narrowly on the individual that it lost all expression in the public realm. Pietists thus, and certainly in our day and time, find themselves constantly preoccupied with evaluating their motives and endlessly studying interpersonal relationships. Pietists believe that God's law word has no place in the governance of modern society. For the pietist, public policy matters are unspiritual and secular, and thus Christian involvement therein is viewed as ungodly. Philip Spiner and August Frank were the two instrumental figures in beginning the pietistic movement, which has since then led to the infection of the Western Church with pietism. A contributing factor, in addition to the cold orthodoxy, which was present but the degree to which it had infected Germany and Western Europe is questionable, which served to jumpstart the pietism was that the Thirty Years' War had recently ended at the time in which Spiner and Frank began to popularize their ideas. Because of the religious nature of this devastating conflict, Christianity in the political realm was easily maligned, and there was a robust acceptance of the view of a personal Christianity. Even though Spiner was the father of pietism, his writings indicate that he did not have envisioned the positions the movement would support after his death. It was Frank, who was about 30 years younger than Spiner, who expanded upon Spiner's foundation. Among the distinctives of Frank's teaching on pietism were separation from the world, the inward personal life, and the lessening of Christian and specifically pastoral involvement in debates over public policy. It did not take long for the political leaders of Europe to recognize this new form of Christianity, and, not surprisingly, pietists were quickly elevated to positions of leaderships in the universities. Why was this? Because for these potentates, a Christianity which was personal and private posed no threat to their quest for absolute power. God's law word was no longer to be contended with in the pietistic system. If Christianity was eradicated from the public realm as the pietists suggested the Enlightenment philosophy in all its humanistic expressions could fill the void. At this point, it is important to realize that the pietistic movement did bring some good Western Christianity. Balance is essential, but the pietistic movement barely got off the ground before it went too far, swinging the pendulum to an unhealthy and ungodly extreme. Today, pietism is what primarily hamstrings Western Christianity. 
Christianity is neither all about the public nor all about the private. It is not an either-or. Instead, it is both, because Christ is Lord over both. He affects the personal private and the public realm. Today we reap the whirlwind which the removal of Christianity and denial of Christ's lordship over the public realm entails. Remember, there is no neutrality. If godliness does not reign supreme, wickedness is the only other option. If God's order is not brought to expression, the will of rebellious, autonomous man will fill the void. Pietism brings a hostility and even hatred of God's law. Today, Christians are oftentimes even more diametrically opposed to God's law than the pagans were. The heathens see the bankruptcy of humanism and have even encouraged the return of biblical principles. Christians, on the other hand, refuse to even consider such, such an action. When presented with the call to bring God's word to bear in every area of life, the pietist immediately throws slogans and catchphrases at you in an attempt to neutralize you and have you join him in his ivory tower of spiritualism. Here are just a few of the many that are often used. We should just preach the gospel. This is perhaps the most common of the pietistic slogans. The question we must ask is this, do you ever ride your bike or go to the gym or read a book? If so, you don't just preach the gospel. You do other things as well. How about when the church announces their fellowship meal? Are they just preaching the gospel? Of course not. No one just preaches the gospel. It is only when Christians suggest that the church should stand for its unborn neighbor or stand for just legislation that all of a sudden there is a need to just preach the gospel. This is false piety. It is where you use one thing of God, for example, preaching the gospel, to justify not doing another thing of God, for example, loving your neighbor. I just expect sinners to act like sinners. God does not expect sinners to act like sinners, and neither should we. That is why he calls sinners to repentance and to conformity to his law word. In actuality, if we should expect sinners to act like sinners, there is even more of a need for good laws. Law does not make men good, but it does restrain evil. Clearly, the law is for sinners. 1 Timothy 1 verse 9 I think we should just pray about it. Again, this is false piety. It is again taking one thing of God and attempting to use it to justify not doing another. Prayer is made very important by the pietists and is used in place of obedience to God's law. Did Jesus teach us just to pray that people are fed? No, he taught us to feed them. Did he teach us just to pray that people are clothed? No, he said to clothe them. Are we told to just pray that people are saved? No, we are commanded to go and preach the gospel. Pietism makes prayer the spiritual substitute for obedience to Christ. God does not call the church to address the symptoms of sin. Does God not call us to address the symptoms of people being poor, naked, sick? In no way. How about the murder of the unborn? Is their being killed a symptom of sin? No. Instead it, as murder, is sin itself, and is punishable by death according to God's law. In conclusion, pietism has been a plague to the church because it has denied Christ's total lordship. It has denied the validity of God's law word in every area of life and compartmentalized the gospel because of it. Pietism has led to retreatism and a preference of security over freedom, which has led to tyranny. It is high time that we shake free of pietism and begin to embrace again a full-orbed gospel. It is time that we begin to apply all of Christ for all of life and bring every action and thought into subjection to his law word. It is herein that we will find true liberty. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. 
Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.